And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to The Phil Hay Show, brought to you by The Athletic, along with The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball. We'll catch up with Phil Hay from The Athletic in just a second. Before we get round to that, a quick word about another athletic show. Stick around at the end of this show to hear a snippet from The Athletic's brand new documentary series, Away From Home. Access all areas to Shakhtar Donetsk, the Ukrainian team, during their Champions League campaign. It's excellent. You'll hear some towards the back end of this show. Into this one now then, the Monday edition of the Phil Hayes Show, where we reflect on the weekend's game. We're also on a Friday, by the way, previewing the upcoming games. We'll be back later this week. First, let's deal with Leeds United 4, Bournemouth 3. Hello, Phil. Hello. What a weekend, Phil, then, and uh, another memorable weekend in the history of Leeds United. Um, The theme of your match report on The Athletic is kind of a, just watch it. It defies explanation. Uh, Now we're on to Monday morning. How do you look back on that game, that madness? I don't know how many people will have picked up on this, but before the game at his press conference, Jesse Mars was talking a little about the World Cup break and he didn't um he wasn't in a position to say too much about what Leeds will actually do. They are looking quite closely at a friendly out in Spain and they've obviously abandoned the idea for the for a trip to the US and um, the, the extended holiday they were going to have. But one of the things he did say was that when um, the season breaks after the game against Spurs this weekend, he's off to Peru and to um, Machu Picchu for a wedding. A, a friend of his is, is getting married and Marsh is, is going to be best man there. He was kind of joking about the fact that, you know, when the Tottenham game finishes, he'll finally have time to to write a wedding speech. And I was thinking to myself as Saturday was going on, Peru and Machu Picchu sounds like exactly the sort of place all of us need to go um, <laughs> for a breather and a rest and to get as far away from football for at least a few weeks as as any of us can get. The intensity of the past few weeks has been insane. And I asked Marsh after the game on Saturday, the, the win over Bournemouth, do you think people need the break? You know, this has been so kind of unusually intense, this period. There's been so much stress and so much focus on his position, so much focus on the position in the league table and, and the form, which up until the Liverpool game was was not good. Does everybody need the chance to reset and, and to get away from all this? And he said, no, you know, he, he said, when you start to win games, you almost want games to to keep going. But I think actually when you look at him and when you see what's going on at the moment, it does seem as if it will be in everybody's interest to have the chance just to draw breath. Um, for a little bit. Somebody else asked him whether or not he'd enjoyed the last couple of weeks, the, the win over Liverpool in the 89th minute, win against Bournemouth, which did not look like it was coming at all at, at 3-1 down. And he said quite simply, no, you know, I haven't enjoyed this. And and you can understand why not. There's the, the scrutiny on him personally, you know, the close scrutiny on his job. But I think to survive and, and as a manager for a long period and, and for the job to be sustainable, you cannot have too many weekends like this. You know, you need the regularity of a team who you know what you're going to get from them, who who are going to turn over results at a fairly reliable rate. And I guess at a, a consistent rate, which keeps you out of trouble and, and keeps you in a, a stable pattern. And Leeds just do not have that at the moment at all. 
I mean, the second half was one of those fantastic periods that Ellen Road seems to serve up at an almost ridiculous rate. I, I, I do often wonder how many other stadiums give you that sort of fixture as often as, as Ellen Road does. But we've been you know, chatting about the fact recently that I, I don't think any of us are totally convinced that the football is sustainable. And I just don't think games and, and form, you know, games and, and form and, and occasions like that are sustainable either. It, it sucks it out of you. It really does take it out of you. And I noticed um, Gabby Bonnehaw saying on TalkSport that Leeds were celebrating like they won the Champions League. They were absolutely not celebrating like that. They were celebrating in the manner of a, a crowd who looked at that and thought we badly, badly needed that result. And I think if you were there, you'd have understood that. And, and that's how it was. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like I've come away from it trying to organise my thoughts because there was so much going around in my head, both on the day, afterwards, in the 24 hours afterwards. It was just crazy, wasn't it? And I guess it is, it's what you say there, it's big picture versus what was an amazing day. And you don't trade off these amazing days for anything because I absolutely loved it. That finish was the stuff that you live for. Like I still hold dear in the memory, Leeds beating Derby 4-3 in 1997. And we saw a very similar kind of turnaround in the scores. We were three down in that one and we won it late on 4-3. And I don't remember how bad we were to get 3-0 down in that game. I just remember the feeling when Boya hit the net late on. And I know that in years to come, I will look back on this in the same way. But right now, there's still that big picture thing just hovering in the background, isn't there? It's, like, it's almost like heart and head. You feel like you're sucking the joy out of the game by talking about the big picture. And you, you almost want to come away from a game like that and just let it stand alone and to say look it 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 was what it was in the end it was it was fantastic occasion and your your money's worth about 10 times over um you'd liken it to to that previous um game against derby back in the 90s i think it reminded me a little bit more of the game leeds lost 4-3 to millwall under thomas christensen in a period where it was dicey for christensen he was under pressure and nothing was quite piling on him in the way that was, you know, making his position totally untenable and forcing Leeds into a decision. But it felt as if it was massively on the edge. And, and it felt as if the things that Leeds were getting from games, the points that they were picking up, were pretty anxious, were pretty desperate, sometimes needed, you know, the, that, the sort of chaos of, of afternoons like that, that game against Millwall. And it was a different game because Leeds were down to 10 players in the first half. Millwall obviously nicked it at the end rather than, than Leeds getting the winning goal when when it mattered. But they are in that they are in that zone at the moment where it is there is still quite a lot of trepidation. I think it was quite plain to see in periods on Saturday. The crowd were extremely supportive in the second half, but there was definitely frustration brewing in the first half. Um and particularly when Bournemouth went three one up. And I think it would be very wrong to look at that game on Saturday and not say that there were parts of the performance that were extremely concerning, particularly defensively. I mean, some of the some of the defensive play was abysmal, particularly Bournemouth's third goal, which was kind of walked in on the counter-attack at a, at a bit of a stroll. You know, they are so open at the back. They they, they are starting to concede goals at, at quite a heavy rate now. And I think given that one of the concerns about the team, one of the big concerns when Marsh um, became head coach was how strong or otherwise they were defensively. That hasn't really been eradicated. Um, and I think to a degree, you can probably put that down to personnel. But I still think that tactically and structurally, there are things about the team that are making them vulnerable at the back. But on the flip side, 
I think the the story really of the the second half was the difference made by the essentially your academy graduates coming on. I I thought Sam Greenwood was a very brave and bold choice. Not that Mark Rocket had a good game at all um, against Bournemouth, but it was a big call, I thought, to go for Greenwood rather than to look to somebody a little bit more experienced. Having said that, you know, Cleek tends to play in more advanced positions rather than that deeper lying role. Um, and, and there isn't really, or there wasn't really much of an alternative to Greenwood on the bench if you were looking to try and replace Rocker fairly like for like. But that finish was phenomenal. And, and I remember writing about Greenwood after he first signed from Arsenal and talking to a coach of his who'd, who'd worked with him at Sunderland. Um, he spoke about how outstanding Greenwood was finishing with dead balls in particular, but just generally how good his shooting tended to be and, and how much he would practice it. And I spoke to Greenwood's dad as well, Stephen, and, and he said that essentially uh, Greenwood is ambidextrous, you know, ambidextrous with his feet, ambidextrous with his hands, um, can shoot with either, which is why, you know, you would think of him, I think, as right-footed, but that finish on um, on Saturday made him look like he could hit it with either, no problem at all. And beyond that, you had Nonto, whose running was a bit like dropping a nuclear bomb on the pitch. He is so strong and he is so... You know, he is so quick, but also bright, you know, very clever. The ball to Somerville was absolutely beautiful for the winning goal. But what was quite interesting as well was having the strength to avoid that nudge in the back or to ride that nudge in the back further up the pitch and to keep his balance, to keep his poise and just to keep his head to to pick the right moment to send the ball through. He had a big, big game, big impact coming off the bench, big feather in his cap. And I think we'll have to be seeing more of him. He's like a little tank, isn't he? He's got the strength and the low centre of gravity that means he's extremely hard to knock over. And I, yeah, I mean, isn't it funny, like, going back to what you said about Greenwood, and I guess almost the same applies to Nonto, is that we saw from Somerville a week or two back a breakout performance from him, and then it feels like it's been Greenwood's turn almost on on Saturday, and then Nonto's joined him as well, and suddenly we've got this increased wealth of options. I thought um, all were excellent, and yeah, we were saying about Greenwood, also got an assist, didn't he, from the, uh, from the corner for Liam Cooper. Yeah, he did. Um, we've spoken plenty of times about the academy recruitment and the fact that it it does look very good. You know, the, the players that they're the signing at academy level, and I'd add Sonny Perkins to this as well, and I think JB from Manchester City will, will be a good player in time um, and potentially a good Premier League player. There is a depth of talent there, um, without any doubt. And I guess the, the way in which the proof will be in the pudding will be their development over three, four years and whether when you get to 2025, 2026, some or all of these players are making up the skeleton of a, a strong and, and consistent Premier League side. They've all got talent. There's no doubt about that. And I think I think one of the things that stands in Somerville's favour now is the fact that he's done this over and over again in the past three weeks. Marsh actually said at his press conference on Thursday, you know, Somerville is not a player who's going to score week after week. You know, He's not going to be a player who is going to rattle off goals. But he actually is at the moment. You know, he's, the goal against Fulham, goal against Liverpool, the, the winning goal um, against Bournemouth as well. It, it is coming from him, and I think I think he's playing well, and I think he's he's looking looking good. The concern with this will be that these players are having to be used to a large extent as impact subs, which is what you expect. But impact subs in some fairly desperate situations, and and that was the case on Saturday. You know, Marsh's comments afterwards were that at halftime he looked at the players and he 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 said he, he saw in their faces that they thought they could win the game and he said he saw in their faces that they would win the game um, which I think is probably pushing it somewhat given what went on immediately after half time but they did dig it out 
And and to, in no small way, they dug it out because of the youngsters who came onto the pitch. Again, to, to think about that in a sustainable sense, I think that will catch up with you eventually. I think if there are too many occasions where you're having to turn to your bench and, and to, to throw on under-21s who are fairly raw and are fairly inexperienced, then it will only work for you so many times. Leeds have to be so much better, I think, at controlling games, at winning games comfortably, rather than it all being on edge and, you know, desperation like it was. But Nonto in particular, really, really impressed with him. Somebody was on Twitter was likening his run to Michael Owens against Argentina in the 98 World Cup. And it's not as if they were like for like. But there was, I think, that same mentality of ball at your feet and knowing exactly what to do. And it wasn't the only time he was able to cover sort of 40, 50 yards in two or three seconds and get the ball out of trouble. He he does look like a big talent. On Somerville specifically, I mean, the number 10 shirt, when he took that in the summer, raised a few eyebrows because, I mean, that's a ballsy move, isn't it? Taking Rafinha's shirt and, the, you know, the symbolism that's attached to the number 10 shirt in any football club is is pretty huge, isn't it? And you thought... Has he has he done enough to to earn that? But you're starting to see now that maybe it's going to be the making of him. He's got the uh, he's got the confidence and he's now getting the goals to back it up. Shot numbers are strange because they've obviously expanded wildly over the years from one to eleven, and some players are quite happy to sit outside the the usual bracket of seven for a, a winger, ten for for a number ten, nine for a centre forward, whatever else. Quite a lot of players like the shirt number to become a brand. Some of them have their own reasons for for picking them. He um, he actually had his eyes, I wrote about this last week, he had his eyes on the number seven shirt, uh, which was Juan Paveda's, but Paveda was going out on loan. So although normally he was down for it, he was leaving and it was going to be left vacant. But um, Brendan Aronson came from RB Salzburg, took that shirt. Um, and the only shirt left in your conventional starting 11 from, from 1 to 11 was the number 10. And I was saying in the piece that Somerville wanted it, but went and spoke to a few of the other players, particularly Liam Cooper, to say to him, you know, is is it a mistake if I take this? Is there going to be any objection if I take this? Will it be a problem? You know, is it too soon? Is it just going to put undue pressure on me? And everybody, including Cooper, just seemed to say to him, look, if you, if you want to, then do it. Um, I think they all felt that it probably wasn't going to be long before Somerville was pushing through to some extent. You know, I don't think anybody knew for certain how much he played at the start of the season, but I think they all, the club realised that that he would play um, and and he would figure at some point and and for a certain amount of time. And I think deep down he, he is just that confident sort who's happy to to take that on. And I think if there were questions in his head or anybody else's about him wearing ten, three goals in three games kind of answers that. And and. I guess eradicates from his mind if it was there anyway. The thought of am I good enough and and can I do it at this level? It doesn't demonstrate that he can do it at this level for a full season or for seasons on end. But I think it shows that he's more than worth a chance and and is absolutely one of the academy players who should be graduating at this point. And let's go back to that moment that he delivered. Then the run from Nonto, the finish by Somerville. Honestly, what did you think at that moment? Because I I just lost my mind. It, you know, it was it was literally it was limbs everywhere. Strangers hugging strangers, hugs across the aisle, just pandemonium in the stands. What do you take from that moment then as a journalist? Do you just start laughing or, or what was it? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It was it was sort of funny in the way that the Gelhart goal against Norwich last season was funny just because of the reaction of the crowd. And as I say, if you were there, there was nothing in, in the atmosphere that said we've won the Champions League. It was everything Everything in the atmosphere said, this is a huge result and we needed it and nobody thought this was coming at 3-1 down. And 
you know, it's wherever people stand on the issue of Marsh and his job and, and what they think of him as a head coach and people know what, what I've written recently. And I, I, I still stand by that. I have to be honest, but nobody wants the club to be relegated and nobody wants the club to get into trouble. And the results are, are absolutely crucial. And, and I have to say, you know, there were a few people who walked past the press box and had a chat after the game. And most of them said, love that great finish, um, you know, finish the game, great result, but still a lot about the, the game and the performance that worries me. And I, I think that's a, a very, very valid point. But Leeds don't want to go down. The crowd don't want them to go down. The results like that really, really matter. And I feel like I'm I'm sort of drawing comparisons with other things that have gone on gone on recently. But yeah, in the same way that the away end at Anfield reminded me a fair bit of the away end at Brentford on the last day of last season, that Somerville goal, albeit a little bit earlier in the game, but not by much, did feel a lot like Gelhart's against Norwich, where you almost couldn't believe that it had happened because there were points of the afternoon where where the house really was on Leeds dropping points, if not losing the game. And it's it is it is a critical result, and it is probably a, a result that means that Leeds will go into the international break or the World Cup break outside of the bottom three. Hi, I'm Adam Crafton, and I'm the host of the Athletics' new documentary series, Away From Home. We've been following Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk through the Champions League group stage. They've had to play their home games in Poland following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The first bomb. Never forget. In this series, we're going to take you inside Shakhtar. Travelling with them across Europe as they set out on their Champions League odyssey. It's not only about football now, it's about the show that we are fighting. I'll be speaking to those in Ukraine itself, hearing stories about how the war has affected them. My wife's father, he died. They killed him here. Subscribe now to Away From Home to follow the whole story. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. With reference to the international break, Phil, have you got it chalked off on your calendar that we're not too far? We're only two games, two league games away from the window opening, the transfer window. Any news, Phil? It's very quiet at the moment. Um, not an awful lot moving. Um, from from what's been said, I, I do get the sense that there is going to be quite a strong temptation to look at, at a left-back and um, to try and find a left-back in January. Uh, it would still make total sense to me, irrespective of what we're seeing from Nonto and Somerville, and, and irrespective of the fact that, that Rodrigo is still in the goals, it would still make total sense to me to be trying to find a, a nine as well who can fit into this squad and fill that role when it's needed. Um, you'll know that Bamford was missing again at the weekend. 
Marsh said he'd injured himself taking a penalty at Thorpe Arch on Friday, basically the last kick of training. And it is genuinely one thing after another with Bamford. And given that he'll now miss the, the League Cup game against Wolves, and I would think Spurs away as well, it was a seven-day injury they were talking about, but it might be a challenge for him to, to be fit um, for the weekend. He will have gone, by the time the season resumes, a full calendar year without scoring. Um, he is, it's ticking on towards 18 months now since he last completed um, 90 minutes. I think everybody has to face up to to what's going on there. Um, and everybody has to face up to the fact that for as long as Leeds are conceding as they are, they're going to need goals at the other end of the pitch. And yes, you know, there, there were four at the weekend, um, but I think in structured play and structured games, they could still be more dangerous um, in that area. And I think they could do with more numbers. Well, if we need a striker that knows the Red Bull system, Cass have, have ruled their verdict <laughs> on the uh, the Jean-Kevin Augustin transfer, not enough over, 18 million quid on the hook, of which a third is payable up front, isn't it, by the by the looks of it? Just to um, clear up one thing that people were asking about this on, on Friday, the, the decision from Cass came on um, Friday morning. And just to, to recap quickly, the, the first appeal from Leipzig um, over the fact that Leeds didn't sign Augustine in, in 2020 went to FIFA. Leipzig believed they owed all the money um, that was due to be paid by Leeds. FIFA ruled in their favour. So Leeds appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport who um, on Friday released their findings and also found that um, Leipzig were entitled to um, the entire fee that Leeds should have uh, that Leeds were obliged to sign uh, Augustine. The obligation should have kicked in Leeds are talking about appealing and, and people might remember on a podcast a couple of weeks back, I was saying that when we'd spoken to Cass in January, they had said that there was technically speaking a means of appeal beyond um, the Cass stage, which is supposed to be binding, but there is something called the Swiss Federal Tribunal, which I think is is there to assess complaints or um, appeals on a procedural basis. But you'll have seen from Leipzig's statement on Friday that in their view, there'll be no grounds for Leeds to to clear the benchmark or to clear the bar that they need to in order to take this to a further appeal. And they have been supremely confident, really from the outset, that they would win this case, Leipzig. They thought they would get the money. They thought they'd be found to be in the right. And I have to say, having read the, the contractual details that FIFA issued when they released their own findings um, last year, I'm not at all surprised that Leipzig have won this. And I think in the end, they they will get their cash. But people were asking, on the basis that Leeds have been told to pay up, does Augustine become their player again? And the answer to that is no. Um, in 2020, he was given free agent status by FIFA on the basis that Leeds were refusing to register him. Leipzig were refusing to accept that he was their player any longer. He was effectively a player without a club. And on that basis, he was going to be, it, it was going to be loss of trade, really. He was going to be stuck unable to play for the duration of the appeal process, which in the end has gone on for the best part of two years. Um, so FIFA's decision was to make him a free agent. He went to Nantes in France. He's now with um, Baal in, in Switzerland. He will not be coming back to Leeds. He's not their player. They cannot make any money out of him in that sense. I think one of the things we're all interested to know is whether there'll be any redress for him in terms of wages um, and um, the, the financial the financial obligations that Leeds made when they agreed a contract with him, because a contract was agreed with him. Um, it was signed, it was there, it was all um, in place um, for the day when he was supposed to join the club after promotion. So a mess. Um, and I think if we're being brutally honest, probably one of the worst signings Leeds have ever made. Well, you've preempted my next question there, Phil. You've done it again. I was just going to say, assuming it doesn't go any further, 
is this the worst transfer in Leeds United's history? And you'd be hard pushed to find a worse one. Even if it does go any further, I find it very difficult to see that Leeds will win this case or will we'll find a way to um, to reduce the amount of money that they have to pay. Uh, the order from um, Cass, and, and I, I assume that this will be delayed um, while Leeds consider their options and will be delayed if Leeds are able to appeal in another way. But the order was that €6.7 million Euros need to be paid immediately. That's the first instalment. The next two instalments for Augustine aren't due yet, but will come in due course. So it's not as if there will be £18 million or €21 million Euros flying out of the accounts at Leeds immediately. But it is €21 million Euros or £18 million that's being paid for a player who they never actually registered permanently, who played less than an hour for them, um, who contributed, if we're being brutally honest, absolutely nothing to the, the promotion season. Apart from that, um, that signing video was very good. It it was yeah it was it was absolutely I am, I am being a little bit facetious you may have not and, and somebody somebody was digging up the tweet about the um I think it was the South Stand or the East Stand maybe in the South Stand after after it was named after Norman Hunter um and Augustine saying on Twitter I'm looking forward to scoring in front of this and didn't so much as as play in front of it in the end um from that point onwards so in terms of where the, the blame lies from this, it's it's really shared. Obviously, there's been the the recruitment of him through the recruitment department and 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 Otters, Victor Otters team. He was a player who Bielsa wanted, um, but once he got to Leeds, it became apparent quite quickly that physically it was going to be a real challenge for him getting up to speed with the way Bielsa's team played, the way just, they just trained. Just on, on that, Phil, just sorry, just to stop you there. Yeah. Was that the reason why he fell out of favour? It wasn't necessarily that he was injured; it was that he couldn't get up to the standards. Required by the club by Bielsa. Well, he was he was injured, so you'll remember that he pulled his hamstring yeah. um, early on. And had it not been for the fact that there was the COVID break, it's likely that it would have been a struggle for him to get back before the end of the season. Anyway, the COVID break came; um, it delayed the season for a, a period of five, six, seven weeks, as as I recall. So towards the end of that, he was able to get himself back to training and and able to to put himself very briefly in contention, but. From what we were told, his levels in training were not high enough. You know, they were not high enough. They weren't um, in touch with what Bielsa wanted the players to do, running stats and the distances they were able to to cover. So Bielsa was so set on the fact that that Augustine wouldn't be involved that Leeds didn't even bother to extend his loan to cover the end of the season, which obviously was um, truncated because of the fact that there'd been COVID and the season finished in July rather than finishing in May as it should have done. And, and with players like... Ben White, um, who was on loan, and, and others like um, Gaetano Berardi, who was due to be out of contract, their deals were extended to make sure that they covered all of the championship games um, that were left. And that Jack, Jack Harrison before. as well, wasn't it? Of course, was yeah. Because Leeds United tried to use yeah. that in evidence, didn't they, to say that, well, we had to extend Harrison's um, loan because you can't, yeah, well, you can't change because, the terms of a contract unilaterally. We, we can talk about that in, in a second because the, there is a comparison there, although equally it, it is slightly different. But with Augustine, that was never done. You know, he he left the club um, officially at, at the end of June and um, with games still to play and promotions still to be secured because he was just not going to be involved. You know, Bielsa was not going to use him. He was not going to feature. So all round, it has not worked. It will cost the, the club a lot of money and the you know what they've gained in, in return for that cash is, is basically nil. I mean, on that, we know that some signings just don't work out. That You know, you lean towards looking at, I mean, Junior Firpo in the current squad. We're still waiting for that to to bear any fruit and we're, we're 30 million pounds committed to that. This this happens with signing footballers. It's a risky business. Surely question marks need to be placed over the fact that they've got into this deal that they apparently couldn't get out of this obligation to sign him if they went up 
having never really seen him perform in training. Um, you know, they, they talk about doing due diligence extensively, don't they? Like I remember speaking to Angus Kinnear when they say they look into the backgrounds of these people, you know, the, the company that they're keeping almost, you know, what, what's their lifestyle like? And they want good people who fit well. How have they found themselves in a, in a position where they've got a guy in who is just not able to meet the standards in training, committed themselves to £18 million pounds, and then having to bomb him out within a few weeks? What has happened there and who's responsible for that? Well, it's not the only occasion that they've done a deal like that. You'll remember with Helder Costa, he came in on loan initially from Wolves, but it was essentially a permanent transfer um, in that the, the deal for the following summer had already been done. There was no way out of it. And and he was due to sign for the club, actually, in, in any circumstances. Leeds, Leeds and Bielsa were so keen on having him that that deal was done with, with Wolves to make sure that, that it went through. It was similar with Augustine, that the only way in which they were going to land Augustine was to negotiate that agreement with Leipzig, which said we will take him, we will pay his wages, and then come the summer, if we're promoted, we will commit to signing him permanently. I think Leipzig by that point had decided that that they wanted um, Augustine to move on, um, that they were no longer going to use him. And I think what they absolutely didn't want was him to go out on loan and then to come back in the summer and then to find themselves dealing with a surplus player who they needed to find a, another buyer for. You're right about Augustine in that... Um, he previously had been on loan at Monaco, and that deal was was um, severed in order for him to come to Leeds. and And it had been up and down for him at Monaco, and his impact had been limited, as it had been latterly um, at Leipzig as well. I actually spoke to Saul Bamba about him, who knows him really well, and and said when he signed, he said he's massively talented. This guy, he really is good player, good striker, good centre forward. But clearly, just was not up to um, the standards that Bielsa was was needing. There is there is more context to this as well in that January window, which is that they were under pressure to find somebody. They'd lost Nketiah, who'd gone back to Arsenal. He'd been recalled. He hadn't been playing enough. Um, he'd been behind Bamford in the order. So they needed a forward. They needed a striker. Um, and they discussed Glenn Murray. They discussed Billy Sharp, neither of whom Bielsa um, was particularly keen on. They looked at Jared Bowen, who was at, at Hull as well. I think that would have had to have been essentially the same deal, you know, that they would have, if they'd been able to do anything with him, they would have taken him, um, but agreed to an obligation to take him permanently again, because because Hull wanted the, the commitment to to that fee being paid. Um, and as time ticked on, you know, they they settled on Augustine. And you might remember the story about them uh, hiring two adjoining hotel rooms at the Doubletree Hilton in Leeds to make sure that that Medical is medical could get done there and could get done quite quietly and quite privately, even though people knew the deal was happening. They were worried about losing him and to, to Manchester United in particular. So they liked him a lot. Um, and Bielsa liked him. Bielsa thought he would be a good addition, but quite clearly he wasn't up to it and physically wasn't up to it. Um, and there's no way of, of painting that deal other than anything other than a disaster. It's incompetence, isn't it? I mean, I know we're saying this with the benefit of hindsight, but surely it looks like really incompetent recruitment, that. Well, it, it does, and and it's a bad mistake without any question. And as I say, I think what happened, you could almost apply a, a broader view to this and say, you know, what happened was that because of the the deal that had been done for Inketi and Inketi not playing, it put them in a corner in January where they had to react and and they had to jump on something. And in the end, they jumped on a very expensive option um, from Leipzig, who wasn't fit enough. Essentially, I don't know about good enough. It's it's so difficult to say because. I saw so little of Augustine, I really couldn't tell you anything about him. You know, in the flesh, I couldn't tell you anything about him as a player because he wasn't on the pitch enough, but physically wasn't up to it. And if there's one thing you, you always knew about Bielsa's team, 
it was that as the bottom line, you had to be physically capable. I think it's worth adding at this point that we all understand that everybody who's at Leeds United wants the best for Leeds United. You know, Victor Orta in particular. So so we have to give them credit as well for some of the, the really good things that they've done. I, we don't just want this to be like a um, an attack line because, you know, we saw Nonto, Somerville, you know, all contributing, Greenwood, Gellhart, so on and so forth. So does that perhaps explain to you why we saw the reaction that we did on that video that was caught of Victor Orta in the West Stand on Saturday shouting, sack the board into a, a fan's phone camera? Is he entitled to give some back? I wrote about almost this exact scenario or, or circumstance last last year, um, last season, when Orta was pictured having a go at a few supporters um, at the end of a game. And it speaks of pressure. It speaks of the pressure that the club are under, that people um, at the very top of the club are under. And and I can see why they do feel pressure because it hasn't been a good season to this point. There were a lot of calls for them to sack Marsh after Leicester and and even more so after Fulham, which they they didn't. They've stood the ground with that. They haven't buckled in, in supporting him. And as it stands at the moment, I think all of us fully expect Marsh to be head coach when we come back after the, the World Cup break. I don't uh, I, I don't fundamentally have a problem with players, managers, club officials answering back to criticism. It just seemed to me to be a strange moment and a strange day to do it um, on Saturday because I don't think that game can be t- in its entirety can be taken as a vindication of your squad, your head coach or the season. There were parts of the second half that were really impressive in the way that the players, fought for themselves and fought for Marsh. I I think there doesn't seem to be any doubt in my mind at all that the players are still with Marsh. I think you can see that in in the better parts of the performances. But there were problems with that game. There were, and nobody can deny that. And it seemed to me that that was the perfect occasion to take three points from a a wild game that, as I say, almost defied explanation. You know, in order to understand it, you really had to watch it. It was almost the only way to, to grasp what was going on. And it did seem like a good occasion to just take Take the points, be happy with it, keep your head down and and carry on. But again, I I think a a couple of weeks ago, I got into the subject about vision at Ellen Road, vision at Leeds United, where the club are going, you know, how they've lost the the impetus and the momentum they had back in 2021 after they finished ninth and and everything seemed to be be going so well. And I think think this feeds into that. I think this, this kind of reflects that, that there is... At the moment, this disconnect between the the board and the crowd, there is frustration there. I think on on both sides. Um, I understand the frustration of the board because it's not working, but I understand a lot of the criticism that's coming on the basis that Leeds have not looked like a good team for about eighteen months now. You know they haven't they haven't looked like a team who are building, a team who are moving forward or who are growing. One of the, one of the issues though is that the nuance has gone out of the debate. It, it is entrenched views about. You know, and to take author in isolation, is he good or is he bad? And and there is always a grey area in the middle where you can say, this has been a mistake, that hasn't worked, these managerial choices have been poor um, or ineffective. This managerial choice, i.e. Bielsa, was massively, massively successful. Some signings have been very good. At academy level, actually, you know, I like the look of a lot of what's being done, but that's only going to count for something if in three or four years' time, 
these players are making up the first team or you're making a lot of money out of them. And, and that is probably the point at which you can judge Orta on people like Nonto and Somerville and Gelhart and Perkins at the moment. They're, they're still too raw to say for certain that those are absolutely outstanding signings as, as promising as they as they do look. So to sum that up in, in one sentence, what you're talking about is a club who've been feeling pressure and are definitely under it at the moment. Well, to circle back where we started to close out the show, uh, it is just worth saying that by God, that was fun <laughs> on Saturday, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, like, you know, we, we pick it all apart and, you know, pull on different threads. But ultimately, we all get into talking about football, watching football, being football fans for what we saw late on at Ellen Road on Saturday. And just, just magic moments like that. It was brilliant. Does it maybe tell us that for 75% of the Premier League, your enjoyment is going to come from individual games? as opposed to seasons as a whole. You will have good seasons. You'll yeah. have seasons, you know, really productive and, and feel like things are, are coming together. But actually, it's the isolated moments, isn't it? It's Somerville at Anfield. It's Somerville against Bournemouth. It's that fight back from 3-1 down. Those are the things that um, those are the things that sustain you and keep you going. Don't they just? Well, that wraps up the Monday edition of the Phil Hayes Show. We return on Friday as we preview the game at Tottenham. Final one before the World Cup break. So we'll speak to you then. Hang around now, though. Before you go, we've got a snippet from The Athletic's brand new documentary series, Away From Home, where they've been granted access all areas to Shakhtar Donetsk during their Champions League campaign, all while their normal lives have been completely turned upside down by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's a remarkable series, and if you like what you hear, you can hear the first three episodes right now by searching for Away From Home wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy this taster of Away From Home. Can, can can you hear me okay? Yes, yes, yeah. of course. You can ask ask question. I try to answer. Sure. So, so I suppose to, just to begin, can you explain the past couple of days how how you are, and also if your family is okay? First of all. Yes. Uh, uh, in in the morning of twenty uh, fourth of of the February, we woke, walked up after the uh, uh, sounds of bombs. And uh, went to basement. This is the captain of Ukrainian football club Shakhtar Donetsk. His name is Taras Stepanenko, and he's one of the most famous footballers in his country. He was born before the collapse of the Soviet Union. He played over 70 times for Ukraine, and he's been with his club since 2010. I called him as war broke out to learn what was happening firsthand. Multiple attacks on cities right across uh, the country. Uh, the foreign minister, uh, Dmitry Kuleba, uh, has, has just tweeted that uh, the country is under full-scale invasion uh, by Russia. I have a wife and three sons, one uh, seven years, one eight and one four. Okay. What do you tell them? Uh, my 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 wife scared so much. Uh, we we started to read news, but my my son they I think they uh, they don't uh, understand clearly what happened. Now I think they 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 scared too. Stepanenko's life changed, like so many other Ukrainians did when Russia invaded the country in early 2022. But six months on, unlike most men his age, 
he's fortunate enough to do his normal job again, to play football and to play in the Champions League, where the best teams from across the continent face off to be crowned kings of Europe. For Ukraine, football is more than a sport now. It's a unifier. It's a statement to the world that they are strong. And Shakhtar Donetsk is the embodiment of that sentiment. We are showing to all the world that, uh, that uh, we are still alive. Nothing cannot kill us. We are in the war for 2014. It will be difficult to play, but we must play. Unfortunately, we are thinking just about Ukraine now. And uh, if this fucking bastard from Russia think that we will stop to play because of that, we will not stop to play. We'll play and we'll win. For The Athletic, I'm Adam Crafton. Over the course of this series, I'll be tracking Shakhtar's unique football journey as they navigate their way through football's toughest contest, all whilst there's a brutal war raging on their doorstep, forcing them out of their own country. You didn't sleep, you, you cannot sleep. Three days, three days without sleep. I'm proud that I'm part of this team, of this club, and today we can be proud because this victory is, is for Ukrainian people, for Ukrainian citizens. It's not only about football now, it's about to show that, uh, to show that we are fighting, that we are still alive. <laughs> This is Away From Home, episode one, We Believe in Miracles. The Phil Hay Show. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.